if someone were to approach you because they knew you were a Christian and they thought that you could help and they came up and they asked you, what does the Bible have to say about the kingdom of God? How would you respond? I think many would probably be inclined to say, well, I know that my pastor went to seminary and he would love to answer that question for you. So go that route or maybe you might default to um, have you ever been to a care group? You should come and meet my care group leader. He, he, he would love to answer that question for you as well. Just listen to this story that one theologian shares. The pastor at his congregation, the pastor looked at his congregation and declared enthusiastically, we are kingdom people and we must invest our lives right now in doing the work of the kingdom. It is to us that God has committed this work and the expansion of his kingdom depends on our obedient and dedicated labor. The congregation nodded in agreement, even though they were not exactly sure what this meant or what they should do. It certainly sounded right and biblical, and they knew that a positive response was appropriate. Most in the congregation had forgotten that two weeks earlier, the pastor taught, taught them that the kingdom would come only when Jesus returned to the earth. But this apparent contradiction between his two sermons did not register. No one asked, is the kingdom present or is it something future? Is the kingdom on this earth or is it in heaven? Like many others, this congregation had learned to live with certain unclear concepts. And the term kingdom of God is one such concept. The word kingdom is often employed by Christians, but many use the term without having a clear understanding of its meaning or usage in the Bible. End quote. Lord willing, today our study is going to bring some clarification to the kingdom of God and that it will edify you, it will equip you so that you can get your mind around what it is when the Bible does mention the kingdom of God. It is much needed before we continue our study in the gospel of Mark. We're currently at the end of Mark chapter 4, and Jesus is about to share two parables, and the subject of both of those parables is, guess what? The kingdom of God. This phrase is used 65 times in the New Testament. And 14 of those 65 times come in Mark's 16 chapters. Also interesting to note is that every time that the phrase is mentioned, the words come out of the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth with the exception of one time where Mark records, uh, records it after the Lord's death. Nothing was more important to our Lord than to do the will of the Father and uh, the, the, the kingdom of God. The presence and the coming of the kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus for example, in Matthew 5 and chapter 7, his teaching was designed to show men how they might enter the kingdom of God. His mighty works were intended to prove that the kingdom of God had come upon them, according to Matthew 12, 28. And the parables, as we are learning, both in Mark 4 and Matthew 13, illustrate for his disciples the truths about the kingdom. When the Lord taught the disciples to pray, at the, the heart of their petition, he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In Matthew 6, before going to the cross, he assured his disciples that he would yet share with them the joy and the fellowship of the kingdom in Luke 22. And he promised that he would appear again on earth in glory to bring the blessing of the kingdom to, to those for whom it was prepared in Matthew 25. I shared back in chapter 1 of Mark uh, where we were introduced to this phrase for the very first time in verses uh, uh, 14 and 15 that the Lord Jesus Christ could have started his ministry by emphasizing anything that he wanted. He could have began by preaching absolutely sharing any or emphasizing any words that he wanted. But it says that he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And those who were here for that message 
You'll recall how we talked about the significance of Christ using that expression, the kingdom of God at hand. We said it literally meant within reach. And we spoke about Christ's person and work and how intimately connected it was to the kingdom of God. We concluded that the kingdom implies both his person and it involves a place. But we also said that much more can and should be said about the kingdom and that the gospel of Mark was going to afford us the opportunity for continued study. If you're a born-again believer, you are part of the kingdom of God. I think that alone would cause and and stir our hearts enough to say, I I probably should understand what it is if I'm a part of it. This is definitely important as it relates to understanding the parables that we're going to get to in the coming weeks. Yet the truth be told, having a grasp on the kingdom of God is really connected to, to our understanding of all of Scripture. So before we get to the parables, Today I wanted to take some time to do this excursus on the kingdom of God, which will certainly help us when we do get to the parables, understand what Jesus is trying to teach us through them. Well, if you'll look at your notes, our goal today is to cover four factors so that you'll uh, fully comprehend the depth, the breadth, and the scope of the kingdom and how it will impact your walk spiritually. And as our notes share, we're going to look at the dangers, the defining elements, the distinctions, and the difference, and these words don't mean anything at the moment, but they will as we continue to make progress. Let's start with the first factor, the dangers you may encounter. A common mistake made by theologians and believers, according to Alva McLean, the author of The Greatness of the Kingdom, is the danger of oversimplification. Listen to what he writes in the opening chapter of his book. The tendency has been given impetus by that natural bent of the human mind best exemplified in systematic philosophers which impels men to search for a single principle or idea which will explain everything else. Although this intellectual motive held under legitimate restraints has often led to fruitful results, it nevertheless is always attended by certain hazards. In the first place, there is a danger of omitting matters of importance which which stand outside our neat little formulas. In the second place, thinking now particularly of the field of Christian theology, this passion for oversimplification may cause men to miss the richness and infinite variety of Christian truth in the interest of barren unity. It was, Williams, it was William James who once suggested, considered from a certain abstract standpoint, Even a masterpiece of violin music might be described as, quote, a scraping of a horse's tails over cat's bowels, end quote. Such a definition, of course, has the great merit of simplicity. It gets rid of all the mystery of personality and the nuances of human genius. But the residue is not very interesting. Now the biblical doctrine of the kingdom of God has suffered considerably from this tendency toward oversimplification. Men have overlooked the greatness of this kingdom, its richness and complexity, its vast sweep through history and its outreach into the eternal state. Too much has been ignored or explained away in the interest of partial and inadequate definitions. This assertion is underscored by the very small place given to the the subject of the kingdom in and well-known and honored works by conservative theologians. In some, one looks in vain for for even any mention of the term kingdom in their indexes, and their treatment of our Lord's office as king is both regrettably meager and unsatisfactory. When we turn to those books written specifically about the kingdom, too often they are found to be devoted chiefly to one aspect, which is made the type phenomenon of a system which leaves out the other important and significant elements. That was a long quote. I appreciate you uh, hanging with me as I completed it. But those um, who, who have any experience with uh, studying the kingdom of God, you know that it's not, it, there, there is no um, simple explanation. We can't just dumb it down to a, a singular concept or a single principle and say, this is, this is what it is. It's colossal. It's huge. 
And so we need to heed the advice of McLean by resisting any temptation to oversimplify it. And this doesn't mean that we can't have an opportunity this morning to do an overview, to gain a big picture of what the kingdom of God is, but that we should honor and recognize its depth, breadth, and scope. So how can we do this? Where is a good starting place? One of the blessings of going to the master's seminary is the personal relationships that we're able to develop with the professors while we're there. And many of those relationships continue long after we graduate. And Dr. Roscup, who taught hermeneutics and prayer, he actually lives right now in Whittier. He's, he's retired from the seminary. Uh, just spoke to him this last week. And um, his, his kidneys have failed him. He's on dialysis. And so it appears his life is, is coming to a close. And um, he's, he's a godly man that I enjoy staying in touch with. Andy Snyder, who's no longer a teacher, is now in pastoral ministry in Texas, is another guy that I turn to when I have theological questions. Dr. Vlock is another man, and he teaches theology currently at the seminary. He's a Nebraska Cornhusker fan, so once I look beyond that, I can, you know, I can relate to him a little bit. But he is currently writing a book on the kingdom of God. And so I can't wait for that resource to come out, but I was asking them as it relates to laying a foundation for our people, is there, is there a book or a go-to resource that will, will help us? And he said McLean's book was the best, and I actually um, had already owned a copy of it and, and wanted to bring it out so you could get an idea what, it's, what it looks like. I'll leave it over at the resource table so um, you, can, you can check it out afterwards. It was very helpful. Another resource that I leaned heavily upon was a journal article that was written by Dr. David Farnell on the kingdom of God. And there's a second book written by Paul Benware calling Understanding End Times Prophecy. Great resource as, as it relates to the kingdom of God and just all of eschatology. And so I share all this with you because a lot of the notes that I've accumulated for this excursus are, are acquired from uh, Dr. Farnell, Dr. Vlock, uh, Paul Benware, and of course, Alva McLean. And so if you want a, a continued study, I share these with you so that you know anything that you read by these guys, will, these guys will bless you immensely. Well, let's continue with another danger you may encounter. It's also dangerous to miss the centrality of the kingdom of God throughout the Bible. In his book, McLean says, we must see the centrality of the kingdom in Scripture when he writes this. The kingdom of God is, in a certain and important sense, the grand central theme of all Holy Scripture. The concept of the kingdom of God involves, in a real sense, the total message of the Bible. And the Old Testament and New Testament thus stand together as the two acts of a single drama. Act 1 depends, points to its conclusion in, Acts two, in Act 2. I'm sorry. And without it, the play is incomplete, unsatisfying. But Act 2 must be read in light of Act 1, else its meaning will be missed. For the play is organically one. The Bible is one book. Had we to give that book a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. That is indeed the central theme everywhere. In approving this affirmation, we're not forgetting the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the king eternal. And there could be no final kingdom apart from him and his work as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Surely the primary object of our faith must always be the one who is both Lord and Savior. But as we contemplate him and his manifold glories as revealed in the word of God, we shall inescapably come sooner or later to the kingdom which he is the divine center. For it is in this kingdom that the Father's eternal purpose in the incarnate Son shall be certainly and completely fulfilled. The reign of God rises out of his own sovereign nature, was reflected in the dominion bestowed by God upon the first Adam, was forfeited quickly by the reason of the sin of man, and has been restored judicially in the last Adam, and will be realized on earth in the final age of human history 
And it reaches out endlessly beyond history where we behold a throne, which is, as John explains, in, it, quote, the throne of God and of the Lamb, Revelation 22.3. Our Lord's inescapable and central relation to the kingdom may serve to explain, at least in part, the compelling interest and fascination with which the subject of the kingdom of God is exercised upon the greatest minds in the church. I promise those are the two longest quotes that I have for this message, but they're important, and they, they can say it in, in such an economy of words, and th- those are real and present dangers as it comes to us and us getting our mind around the kingdom of God that we would be tempted to oversimplify it, that we, we would miss the centrality of the kingdom of God in all of Scripture. And so this is important. This excursus today is important for us to understand. The second factor so that you fully comprehend the depth, breadth, and scope of the kingdom is this. The defining elements of a kingdom. It will help us to start by defining the term kingdom. And the word actually consists of the word king and the suffix dom, which is an abbreviation for the word domain. So when we're talking about the kingdom, we're literally talking about the domain of a king. There are other words in the Old Testament and New Testament that are translated kingdom, and even other words that are related to the kingdom concept. But like any term, the meaning of kingdom in similar terms is not found primarily in the etymology or in the origin. It's actually connected with how it's used. Its usage determines its meaning. Both the Hebrew and Greek terms are often translated as royalty, royal power, reign, and kingdom. In sum, the concept of kingdom includes three defining elements, and these should be listed for you in your notes. They are ruler, realm, and rulership. They, they start with the letter R, and I know you guys know by now my love for alliterations, but this is not mine, okay? This was taken from uh, uh, Dr. McLean. And uh, these were his R words. First, a ruler. A kingdom involves a ruler with adequate authority and power. In the biblical concept of the kingdom of God, that ruler, of course, is our sovereign God. And Jehoshaphat, he really grasped it well in 2 Chronicles 26 when he says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Jehoshaphat recognized the sovereign authority of God to rule over the entire universe. The sovereign authority of God to rule is discussed throughout the scriptures all the way from beginning to end. And it's in Revelation where the question of rulership over the earth is settled once and for all. And the Apostle John refers to the throne of God some 30 times. And the term throne speaks of the seat of authority. God is seen as the sovereign ruler who has great power and authority in his rulership. A kingdom then must have a ruler who has the authority to rule. The second defining element is a realm. A kingdom involves a realm of subjects to, to, to be ruled. Okay, this is key to understanding the, the concept because I think most of us, when we think of a realm, we're, we're, we're spatial or maybe um, we think of a place when we think of a realm. But here we need to connect it with a realm of subjects. And I think a modern illustration would, would serve us well when we see countries at war or kingdoms at war and a country is trying to overtake another country and there is some uh, battle that's going on usually of a geographical space but what ultimately determines control? Right? It's not necessarily the, 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 the geographical region, right? It's the realm of subjects. It's bringing the people under control. And so it is true with the kingdom of God. We're talking about um, a realm of subjects. And though it includes both a, a place 
and subjects, the emphasis is on the realm of subjects. Paul Benware writes, if there is only authority but no subjects in a realm, then by definition, no kingdom can exist. The third defining element is rulership. A kingdom involves the actual exercise or function of rulership. I looked it up. It's not even a word. So they, they adopted a word to, to help and um, maybe fit his alliteration. I will say that I've never come to the point where I've made words up to make that happen in my sermon outlines. But, 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 but it fits. Um, there, there's rulership that takes place. There's law and decrees that may be exercised within a given kingdom. So when we talk about rulership, we're speaking of the exercise or the application of authority between a ruler and a realm of subjects. And the kingdom of God, of course, is subject to the word of God as it relates to rulership. All three defining elements are needed for a kingdom. And as McLean says, there can be no kingdom in the truest sense without the ruler, realm, and the reigning function. The third factor, so that you fully comprehend the depth, the breadth, and the scope of the kingdom of God, is this. The distinctions you need to make in your Bible between aspects. Systematic theologian Louis Burkhoff had this to say, No one can make a serious study of the subject without discovering that the kingdom of God is a many-sided conception, and its presentation in the, in the Gospels is complex rather than simple. The study of its various aspects leads to a, a difference of emphasis, and this in turn gives birth to a large number of often disparate views. And so I share that quote with you because McLean actually takes an entire chapter in his book to talk about all the different views that f flow out um, of the kingdom of God. And it would take us a few Sundays to actually go through them all. But what I thought would be most helpful is to give you a th framework of thinking that takes into account four aspects of the kingdom of God that correspond with the theological position of our church and our doctrinal statement. These are listed in your notes. And I, I really do believe that this is the factor that will, will help you get your mind around the, the full concept of what the kingdom of God means and begin to fuel your thinking as it relates to your spiritual walk. I'm going to test somebody, by the way, so that, that should cause a little bit of fear. I'm going to pull somebody up at the end to see how you remember these. Just kidding, but I thought maybe if I shared that... It, Wake up a few people. Here we go. First up to bat, the universal kingdom of God. The universal kingdom, as you might guess, is the rule of God over the entire universe. In this kingdom, nothing happens outside of the will of God because he's sovereign and in control. This sovereign control is eternal. And as the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah declared, in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, he is the living God and the everlasting king. This rule is usually direct and it's sometimes evidenced through supernatural manifestations. But God also rules indirectly through individuals or through elements of nature. And this aspect of the kingdom would therefore be the broadest expression of the kingdom of God. He is an eternal sovereign ruler everywhere over the entire creation and mentally uh, this is the first one that we're covering you could call this the umbrella aspect because everything else as it relates to the the the, the other aspects that we're going to talk about in just a few moments is going to come underneath of that it's going to fall underneath the universal aspect of the kingdom of god the second aspect is the mediatorial kingdom of God. Excuse me. This is an aspect of the kingdom of God that McLean uses throughout his book. And you'll have a chance to look through it, those that are interested later. You can see him use this term. He talks about the mediatorial kingdom in the Old Testament, then into the New Testament. And this speaks of God's rule over a temporal or human kingdom. Specifically, it's used to speak of God's rule over the earth in contrast to his rule over the universe. And of his indirect administration through human mediators in contrast to his direct ruling. 
Our introduction to the mediatorial reign actually begins back in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, God assigned Adam in Genesis 2.15 to cultivate the garden and to keep it. And of course, we all know the story of the fall well. What happens? Adam disobeyed God and he yielded to the counsel of Eve. And God mediated in Genesis 321 when he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife wife and he clothed them why because due to their sin they 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 discovered that they were naked they felt shame and right from the very beginning we see God step into this mediatorial role and this launches us into a series of events where the mediatorial kingdom of God would continue to unfold the wickedness of man would only continue to escalate By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, if you go to verses 5 and 6, God is already calling into question why he ever made man. And he's grieved in his heart because of what he sees. But in Genesis 6-7, it says that Noah found favor. I tell you, when I get to to heaven, one of the first people that I want to seek out and and meat is, is Noah. It's powerful. Makes a great, great boy's name, too, uh, for those who are interested in boys' names. Noah, it's a great name. Um, we just have one. That's an inside joke. But uh, um, I, I share all this because um, God, God also made this mediatorial provision um, through Noah, right? And we, we know the story well, um, building the ark. Okay, really in the end, saving humanity, functioning in the mediatorial kingdom. And eventually generations of inhabitants would fill the earth, giving birth to nations. And the mediatorial aspect of the kingdom would continue with a covenant made by God uh, with Abraham in the form of land and seed and blessing. And this eventually led to the birth of a nation who was declared as God's chosen people, who would also be a reflection of the mediatorial kingdom. Eventually, the the mediatorial kingdom led to the establishment of human judges that that God ordained that would would judge Israel. And then this paved the way, those who have read through Judges, then we we continue in the, 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 the history writings, we know exactly what takes place. It leads into the monarchy, right? God established earthly kings um, according to his mediatorial kingdom. And the provision began with Saul, goes to David, Solomon, and down the line. But specifically, we need to call attention to the, the covenant that was made to David in Second Samuel 7, where there was a, a, the, a promise that was made that through his line, there would come an appointed one. There would come one who would be called Messiah. And of course, God used the prophets as his mediatorial mouthpieces as well. And they all pointed to Christ. And when Jesus Christ shows up as king in the form of God, true God, he was extending to Israel the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. He was... And really, this is at the heart of what Jesus is saying when he was saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Had Israel recognized Christ for who he really was as Israel's king, God, and sovereign ruler, then Israel could have witnessed the manifestation of the earthly reign of Christ. But the millennium in its its fullness was pending contingent repentance and faith from Israel. Israel rejected their king, and we can even say rejected the messianic kingdom, rejected the the millennial kingdom due to their unbelief. They could have potentially, this is, you might be hearing this for the first time, you're like, is he teaching accurately? Yeah, this, this is what was being extended to them. They could have ushered it in when Christ came the first time, but they did not believe. And what does the kingdom require? Ruler, realm of subjects. And of course, this fulfilled the predetermined plan of God who sent his son as the mediator who would then go on to the cross 
And this would also allow the mediatorial kingdom of God to continue from the Old Testament to the New Testament as the church gets established. And so this is where we find ourselves in history as it relates to the mediatorial kingdom of God. We're in the church age, right? We're right. Maybe you've never considered that perspective, just how it all ties in together from the very beginning in in God's mediation for us, right? It's all connected. It's all should come to mind when we think about the kingdom of God, how it's tied together. This brings us to our third aspect of the kingdom of God. The millennial, or you could say, I think it's listed as millennial in your notes, but you could say messianic kingdom of God. And this aspect of the kingdom of God is yet future. And as the name uh, means, it's it's going to involve a, a thousand years. And this facet of God's kingdom will fulfill the great eternal unconditional covenants of the Old Testament, particularly the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus Christ is going to return and he is literally and physically going to rule from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And it's oftentimes called the Messianic kingdom because Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. And this is the kingdom that John the Baptist declared was at hand. This is the kingdom that was offered to the nation of Israel, both by John the Baptist and Jesus. And it was this aspect of the kingdom that was rejected by the nation when they spurned the Lord Jesus. But in the future time of tribulation, Israel will once again be offered this kingdom. And at that time, they will accept it, and Jesus will rule, excuse me, on the Davidic throne. What will things be like in the coming millennial kingdom? Listen to how Paul Benware describes it. Oh, this is a lengthy quote. I may need to ask for forgiveness after this. But, but, but let me preface this one because um, as it relates to the millennial kingdom, which you will be a part of, okay, believer, you will be a part of and ruling and reigning with Christ. Just, just listen to, to how encouraging this is. Once all the enemies of Christ are removed and all necessary resurrections and judgments take place, the wonderful period of the millennium will begin. All right. Before we continue on the millennium, I forgot, there's, there's two important um, eschatological events that got to take place before we get to the millennial kingdom. Okay? This, one of them is the very next event that's going to take place in, in the church, in the church age. It is the rapture. That's right. Well-taught group. I knew that you would know. It's it's the rapture of the church, okay? So in a moment, at any point in time, and this is something that we lose sight of, and I confess I lose sight of all the time, that the rapture is imminent. At any point in time, the the Lord is going to to snatch us off this earth. Probably should think about that a little bit more, huh? Any point in time, he's going to snatch you. Right off this earth. And this is going to start or, or, or be the uh, launch, the beginning of what's called the tribulation. Seven years of tribulation. And this is a significant event as well because God is going to pour out his wrath. He's removing the grace of the church and of believers and he is going to pour out his judgment on this earth and it's going to involve involve, um, 80 plus percent of this earth, the people on this earth dying in judgment. And so when we're talking about the millennial kingdom, we're talking about the very next event that comes after all of that. So I, I didn't feel like I set that up properly before we talk about it. And it's important for us to capture those, those two eschatological events and have those firmly in mind before we talk about the millennial kingdom. So this is what's going to take place afterwards, and it's going to be characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. 
Ben Ware continues by saying this, all people everywhere will worship the Lord Jesus who will be present in his glory. The curse that was placed on the creation at the fall of mankind will be removed, causing the desert and all of the earth to bloom and become fertile. Because of this, mankind will experience an unprecedented prosperity that will reach to every individual. Apparently, very long lifespans will uh, characterize the kingdom. This, coupled with the absence of disease, will cause the population of the earth to increase rapidly. And also the removal of the curse will immediately affect the animal kingdom. Animals will once again universally be vegetarians. No longer will lions eat lambs. Rather, they will nap together in peace and harmony. And that will make all the animal lovers very happy. And if you want a, a real good picture of this, you can go to Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17, and it talks about what that's going to look like in the millennial kingdom. And it says that anyone who, who dies at 100 will be, will be thought to have been accursed. Okay, And then if you go down in the end of that chapter, you'll, it, that's where it talks about uh, the lion and the lamb uh, grazing together. Actually, important that this is grazing. They're, they're, they're going to be eating together. And they're going to be eating vegetation, uh, not each other. When the messianic kingdom begins, only believers will inhabit the kingdom. And they will gladly worship the king. But even though all are believers at the beginning, the kingdom will be made up of people with two different types of bodies. And so you have to capture this. We're going to be raptured, so we're already going to be in our glorified bodies. Okay? And then we are going to return to earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at that time, at Christ's return, the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected and they'll have their glorified bodies. And then we'll be um, that, that 20% of people, that, that, that remaining um, number of people that will be left, that more than likely we will have come, they will have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be in bodies just like ours today. And so during the rule and reign of that 1,000 years, they're going to, it's going to be uh, the, the fertility of the earth, the, the blossoming of the earth, even the population is just going to, to, to burst. People are going to live long. People are going to marry. People are going to, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be spectacular. In this environment of truth and righteousness, most will probably become believers and followers, but some will not. Only a few will actually be outwardly rebellious and receive the Lord's rod of iron. Most will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But the millennial kingdom will have more and more unbelievers as time goes on. It is these unbelievers that Satan, when he is released from the abyss for a short time at the end of the millennium, will find willing to rebel against the rule of King Jesus according to Revelation 27 through 10. End quote. That was finishing uh, Ben Ware's quote. So, and even that, you know, we, we, we think of this, you know, the Armageddon, we think of this just massive, oh, it's going to be, rah, you know, it's like Lord of the Rings type um, final battle. And the, most, uh, a lot of theologians have the perspective that, you know, that just as the mighty fortress, um, uh, the, the, the hymn shares, you know, that it's just going to be one little word that, that fells him that's going to dispel him, to banish him out of God's presence. And I realize that what I'm sharing right now, what I'm throwing at you is a ton of information, but there's really no way, as it relates to us doing an excursus in, in, in one Sunday, for us to downsize this portion, okay, the portion size. We have, to, we have to take it all in. And we still have one more aspect to consider, which is our fourth and final aspect of the kingdom of God. So just hang strong with me, all right? Let's finish and get, the, get our minds around this. This aspect, the eternal kingdom, might be, it might be well to include it with the millennial kingdom because there, there is a connection, but there are certain factors that, um, for good reason, help us to keep it distinct. Daniel 2.44 declares that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and it will itself endure forever. The kingdom spoken of by Daniel comes into existence only after all the kingdoms of man are totally removed from the earth. This eternal kingdom of God does not coexist with human kingdoms. In Revelation 5, the Apostle John had a vision of the Lord Jesus 
receiving the right to judge and rule the world. And this is prior to his second coming. And after Christ returns and rules, the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will destroy all human kingdoms and establish his own. And this, of course, is the millennial kingdom, which will last for a thousand years. But how can it last for a thousand years and said to, to be able to endure forever if it's limited in its time scope? So that, that, that gives us a little bit of an insight, helping us to understand that there are actually two phases when, when we come to the eternal kingdom. Um, in one sense, there's the, the first phase, the millennium, and in another, there's the, 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 the second phase, which is the eternal state. Um, and you've heard this explained before, as Revelation 21.5 said, there's going to be a reverse of the curse. Basically, it's going to be a restoration going into the eternal state of, of the paradise, which once existed be, before the fall. And um, it will be a forever kingdom. And so we need to see that emphasis placed on it. And there's actually a couple scriptures that help us to see that um, there will be no created being that will ever begin to establish a kingdom and rule anywhere in the universe after that point in time, after that establishment. Benware concludes by saying, these notable differences in the concept of the kingdom of God are not contradictions at all. The supposed contradictions disappear and the fuller picture of the kingdom of God comes into focus when we understand that each of these aspects to the kingdom of God are revealed in the scriptures. And I hope by now, just by us talking about these things, because really, in the end, as it relates to the kingdom of God, you're really, I'm asking you, scripture is asking you to remember four aspects, right? The, the, the four aspects that are listed. There's this universal aspect, uh, uh, universal kingdom aspect, uh, universal kingdom of God aspect that covers all. And then the other aspects uh, f- flow out of that. There's a mediatorial aspect that basically covers everything that we read in all of Scripture that takes us all the way up to the millennial kingdom. And then the millennial kingdom gives way to the eternal state. And for those that are hearing that for the first time, today, and there, there could be a couple of you, that seems like a lot to take in. But for those of us who have been around the ministry block a few times, and we've heard this, that's not a lot for you to capture as it relates to your understanding of the kingdom of God. So I hope that just as it relates to you processing a little bit, that you're not intimidated. And if somebody were to come up and ask you, hey, what does the Bible say about the kingdom of God, that after today you'd feel a little bit more edified and equipped and, and feel like you'd have a starting place. You may say, well, the three defining elements of a kingdom, I remember those R words. They are, ah, what were they again? No. Um, ah, ruler, yeah, 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 realm of subjects. Okay, you just keep working on down the line. Okay, rulership, the made up word. Then you can talk about how your silly pastor always had all these alliterations, but take them off, take them off track. Now, I wanted to be practical in my approach to this message too. And so before we get to the, the fourth and final factor, which is really more or less a point of application, I, I did want to share um, just a little bit of insight on how you can make the distinctions when you do see the kingdom of God in your Bible and how you can know which kingdom it's referring to. In some passages, the kingdom is said to be something that has always existed. And we see this often in the Psalms. The Psalms tell us that the Lord is the eternal ruler over an everlasting kingdom. And of course, this would be a reference to the universal kingdom, right? We get that. On the other hand, Jesus encouraged his followers to pray for the kingdom to come. And Daniel foretold a day when the kingdom would begin, indicating that, there, that its presence was not in existence. And so when we see the mention of the kingdom in the context and it's connected to a beginning... We know that it's a reference and, and, and talking about the, the millennial kingdom. So one way to distinguish between these two kingdoms is to note whether or not the kingdom has a starting point. Another important distinction and a tip is to notice when the Bible speaks of the kingdom as being universal in its scope. 
If it includes, if the verse or the passage is talking about all created things, then of course we know that it's the, the universal kingdom of God. David declared, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103, 19. And so that would be a reference to the universal kingdom. Then when we come to passages like Daniel 2, 44 through 45, where God establishes a kingdom that will encompass the whole earth, and passages that say that Christ will literally rule from the throne in Jerusalem, like Isaiah 24, 23, and Zechariah 14, 4 through 9, we know that these passages are referring to the millennial kingdom. And another help too, oftentimes those have, some people have MacArthur study Bibles, but if you have a good study Bible as well, oftentimes you can look down in the notes and they'll supply for you which kingdom aspect the passage is referring to. All right, here's one final tip that Dr. Vlock shared that I think helps. He said this, in short, the kingdom in the Old Testament and New Testament is the millennial kingdom except for the few references to the eternal state in 1 Corinthians 15:50 and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. So that's like super cliff super kingdom cliff notes right there for you. Um, big help. So your default kingdom of God setting should be when you're reading through the Old Testament outside of the kingdom of God expressions in the Psalms that include the universal the, 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 the majority, uh, the, the rest of them are pointing to the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And the, the only exception to that, of course, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Revelation 21 and 22 chapters, that is. Um, those would be talking about the eternal state. Well, the last factor I concluded, or included in the outline, is focused on making a point of application. And I want us to read that question together. The difference your understanding of the kingdom of God can make. What bearing does all this have on your walk? What is the, the so what of this message as, as, you, as you process it? Only you can answer that question in the end, by the way. I can just speak uh, from, from my own heart and share, just as the Lord was having me prepare this uh, excursus, some of the things that I learned as I was just going through the notes. First of all, I was greatly rebuked by the fact that I have oversimplified the kingdom of God a lot in my own mindset. And it was it was edifying and it was a rebuke at the same time to read McLean's book and to read Benware and to read all these guys who had put so much study and focus on the kingdom of God. And then I had to confess that there was, Lord, there's just so much that, that, that I don't know. And it is the central purpose uh, of all of Scripture, Right? And so, think about that for a moment. If it's that big of a deal to God, then it needs to be a big deal to me. It is all about the king. This is a foundational way to start just as we go into the Advent season and, and think about the, the birth of Christ. The, the, the king is, was born. Right? Prepare our hearts. The it is the central purpose and, and so it's just, it, it, there's so much for, for us to know and yeah it does take effort to, to reach a little bit and to stretch and a willingness in our part to read and study and get our arms around it and God will graciously help us to do that and I can share firsthand he helped me graciously just even in preparing for this message as I looked at the defining elements I thought about him as, as our ruler, our perfect ruler, you know, in light of all that's going on, just with, you know, the, we're just trying to get a decent presidential candidate out of this mix, aren't we not? 
you know, just as it relates to politics and someone to lead the United States, a leader? All right. Who to vote for? You'll never hear me talk about a political push from this pulpit. Trust me on that one. I was just like, can we just, is this, is this the best we have to offer as a country as it relates to, to, to people who are going to stand up and lean? And this, again, that's, that's dispersing the criticism a little bit because there, there are a lot of hidden agendas, at least from what I've noticed. But we have the perfect leader. We have the perfect ruler. We have him to appeal to, and what a blessing that is. I thought about the reality of just the realm of subjects and that I'm one of those subjects in those kingdom in the kingdom and and how what is my responsiveness to the king what is my sensitivity to what he asks of me to do and how he wants to live how he wants me to live my life according to his purposes it's humbling and of course there's there's rulership which brings into mind submission and, and our desire to, to obey so that he gets glorified in great capacity. And then we can just even, you can walk down the aspects of the kingdom and just think about them. You know, we have a, a sovereign God and the universal aspect. And there is no maverick molecule in the universe. There's nothing outside of his control. And that we're living in a mediatorial kingdom right now where we're to be ambassadors for the truth and to step up to, to um, share with people what the real kingdom is that they should be living for. Not the kingdom of, of career. Not the kingdom of false religion. You know, it just hits real home, too, when we, 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 we turn on the news, and I'm sure you were as shocked as I was when we, you saw that shooting in San Bernardino and just how close it is to us, right, right here, right literally in our backyard. And yet it is a champion call to us as believers to, to, to evangelize and to... to to reach and, and, and it's only going to get worse. I was talking to my neighbor Daniel last night. He goes um, to uh, to a church in Chino Hills, and um, I was thinking that maybe he and the West need to like just switch houses and be so much easier. Right? Anyway, um, anyway, I was just talking to him, and he said that our neighbor, uh, three doors down from him, is a guy who's always listening to Islamic music. And he said that he's tried to wave to him. I haven't seen him, but maybe twice. But he said he tried to wave to him one time and that he didn't even wave back. And he just said that he was, he was reading up on Islam and he was thinking about how he might be able to reach out to him and how he might be able to witness to him. And that's what it's going to take. That's, that, that's what's needed right now. And he was just, he was blessing me so much. He was telling me about all that he was reading and you know, I, I, those who I'm friends with on Facebook, you know, that I've read some things too, just as it's related to the sword verses in the Quran and how they're not limited to a historical context. And that is why those who oppose Allah can be killed today. And that what we would call radical Islamic extremists are just really people who are taking the Quran at face value and obeying it. That's, that's what it is. And they're, 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 they're living for a lie. And I don't know, maybe this man living down the street from, from us is living for a lie. And he's gonna, he needs the truth. He needs the gospel. And that's, that's, a, that's a challenge to my own heart. That's a challenge for all of us, right? Just as it relates to us functioning in a gospel context and the mediatorial kingdom that God has us in right now. And then, of course, we need to think about the millennium. Think about the eternal state. And the rebuke to my heart is, am I, am I really longing for it? Are you really longing for it? Think about that. Or is the kingdom of this world 
sinking its hooks into you? Is it holding you back from longing for it? Is it having you prioritize things so that you lose sight of it? And that's the world. That's what the world does. And the Lord, of course, used the foot washing illustration because we're going to walk in a sin-filled, lust-filled world, stained and right, and we have to cleanse ourselves and we have to be renewed with that hope. And I need my own heart to be renewed and I need to, to be longing for the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the messianic kingdom. It's coming. It's coming. People always, you know, and the temptation, I resisted it totally today by not going all 700 clubbish on you and getting es- eschatological and... And, um, oh, I can't even remember his name. And the, the guy, you know who I'm talking about, who gets so excited, the guy on 700 Club? And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. He gets so impassioned. And it's a great thing. I think it's, it's super encouraging. But they, they, can, they can have you hyperanalyze eschatology and then have that be all that you think about. But I think that it's important that we also adjust our lenses if it is so pervasive and it is the central purpose of Scripture that we, we focus our eye, eyes on it and that we view, it, view this life through the lens of the kingdom. It's coming. The Lord's return, the rapture is coming. When? Nobody knows for sure. But we know that it's closer this week than it was last. And that's just how time works. And so that is a call to us all to have hearts that are prepared to worship. That is a a call to us all to um, deny ungodliness and to resist the things of this world that are going to cause a a, a reproach or blame on the name of Christ. To live holy lives, there's so much that's tied to it. Thank you. You all have been very gracious, giving me some extended time to talk about this excursus. And we'll look forward to having the opportunity to learn more about the kingdom of God when we study the coming parables in Mark chapter 4. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time just to uh, take a step back and think about the concept of the, the kingdom, the greatness of your kingdom. It's even the title of Alva McLean's book as he studied the kingdom and wrote about it he opted for the title the greatness of your kingdom that alone should mean something to us as believers as we consider a man who spent so much time thinking about it that that was the title that ultimately was penned on his book And Lord, though you're not having any of us, potentially could be possible down the road to write a book on the kingdom of God. To some degree, we we are writing a book as it relates to our understanding. And I pray, Father, for my own heart that you would just allow me to grow my understanding and that you would allow me to add pages to my book and grow in depth of what the kingdom means and all the aspects and to see your sovereign purpose and your plan in all things. And I pray for everyone in our congregation, everyone that knows you, loves you, serves you as king, as ruler, that as a realm of subjects that we would take an interest in knowing more about what the future holds. It was a blessing just to take a step back today and to consider all these things. And we are living in a world where many that we know are living in utter defiance and rejection of the king, the one true king. And you have called us according to your purposes to reach out to them. And I just recall my conversation with my neighbor, Daniel, who was talking about converted Muslims And they said the the greatest difference between Allah and Jesus Christ was the message of love and forgiveness that the Bible has to offer, that the Quran does not. And that is just a powerful testimony. 
And Lord, we just pray that you'll continue to use us in every way possible to continue to reach out, to share the message of love, the message of truth, that those who live in defiance of the King so desperately need to hear. Give us courage, strengthen us, help us to be testimonies for your namesake and for your glory. And we all pray as a church family, we say, Maranatha, we say, come Lord Jesus, come soon. May your kingdom come and truly may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name, amen.